So, over the course of this retreat, to varying degrees, I think some of you, if not most of you, have been working with the question of identity, the question of who am I, kind of the number one spiritual question, because how we come to understand ourselves determines how we'll feel about our lives and how we will treat each other and how we'll treat the environment, the world. It's a question that's been asked so many ways. In Zen they say, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? The Hopi say you must ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? What am I? What is, what is this being that can know of itself and wonder about the universe? Ever since we grew these big brains, we've been asking ourselves these questions, right? And to answer them, we've come up with some pretty fantastic stories. Gods and devils and heavens and hells. And, and humans are so arrogant We've come to believe the entire universe was made just for us. That we are specially created and separate from the rest. Our major religions have come to regard the earth as little more than a training planet. A place where you come to learn some lessons or burn off some karma, and then you go off to some other place where you really belong. Those stories seem a little dysfunctional these days because they take our reverence away from this world and from this life. Luckily, we're starting to tell ourselves a different story. The new story says that we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. The new story says we are related to every being that's ever lived, bound together by that elegant spiral of DNA. The story of evolution is literally everybody's biography, autobiography. This new story is based on science. So it must be true. This new story we're telling ourselves also has a lot of resonance with the Buddhist teachings, especially the teachings of Anicca and Anatta, impermanence and no self. This new story teaches us about dependent co-arising, that we are not separate from all things, from all elements, that we are a flow of elements coming together for a moment in time. It's pretty exciting. But can we start to live by this new story? And how can we integrate this new understanding and make it part of our lives, get it into the marrow of our being? I think that's part of what we were doing here. Being on this beautiful land, 
seeing all these other beings in all their glory, feeling our bodies becoming reincarnated, coming down from our our psychology, our, our little story of us, or a little story of each of us to the story of us. So tonight I want to offer a few episodes of our new story. And uh, it's wonderful also because this new story, there's as much miraculous in this new story as there was in any Bible. It's a miracle how life has evolved on this planet and how the cosmos has come into being, according to many scientists, out of nothing. This is Albert Einstein. One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of life, of eternity, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity, he says. So, uh, I'll start with the mystery of the cosmos. As Carl Sagan said, if you're going to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a universe. (laughs) I was reading an article in the New Yorker about uh, parallel universes, and uh, this one... Somebody asked this one scientist, well, I could never imagine such a thing, you know, universe after universe. And the scientist said, well, if you hadn't been born into this universe, could you imagine this? Could you dream this up? You know, it's become so for granted that we don't really see it with beginner's mind, with beginner's eyes. On the opening page of my... uh, internet search engine, I get a daily astronomy picture of the day chosen by NASA scientists. It's a wonderful uh, way to sort of keep up with what's happening in the universe. You know, you <laughs> go to New York Times for what's happening in the world, and then uh, the NASA scientists will tell you. Uh, the other day, actually it was quite a while ago, a few months ago, I, I uh, saw a picture of a new galaxy that had been discovered uh, called the Sombrero Galaxy, because it was shaped like a Mexican hat, and it contained 600 million suns. You know, and you read that, and you're kind of like, yeah, okay, that's cool, you know. that's No no idea at all how big that is. How do they count that? Oh, they just, you know, they, they one, two, three, four, four, <laughs> But the question is why? Why in this age? And and you know you you can read these mind blowing figures every day. Why we aren't all on our knees and just in, just walking around in a kind of perpetual you know astonishment with our mouths open. The latest estimate, and remember, less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy. In the universe. Uh, the latest estimate is there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies 
containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. More than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. What, you know, what does that mean? How can we absorb that or even begin to adjust our sense of ourselves in the, in the world, in the universe? An interesting, interesting time. Some scientists say all that stuff came out of nothing, virtually. Literally. So I, I want to write a new creation myth. It'll go like this. In the beginning... There was nothing, said the scientists. And it was good. (laughs) Nothing can ever be wrong with nothing. In the beginning, there wasn't any space. So there was no place to put anything. And it was good. In the beginning, there wasn't any time. So nothing ever got done. Nobody cared. And then there was suddenly a big Bang. Now, some people asked the scientists, they wondered if there had been nothing, what banged? And they went back and did some recalculation and they decided there had been something after all a dot, a singularity, a point smaller than an atom. And so it came to pass, saith the scientists, that dot exploded. It happened 13.7 billion years ago, today. (laughs) Happy birthday, everybody. 13.7 billion years ago today, that dot exploded, and all those billions of suns and planets and the earth and you and me and everything we can know of and name came out of the explosion of that tiny dot, smaller than an atom. Now, Isn't that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? (laughs) Take your pick. Which is more fantastic? Which is more believable? Uh, One scientist said, uh, well, earlier, they say that a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. Now, that's the universe you can get your mind around, you know? (laughs) Take it home, put it in a corner. Now somebody estimates the universe to be 10 billion trillion cubic light years large. Approximately. But now, what's out there? Uh, you know, we know there's all those galaxies and planets. And and they're finding, the, the Kepler Space Telescope, which has been in orbit for, I think, uh, just about a year or two, maybe, is finding literally hundreds up to thousand uh, planets in our galaxy that they believe could support life. Uh, planets going around their sun in the so-called Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. And uh, it seems, given the number of possibilities, it's very likely there's lots of life out there all over the place in the universe. I think that's really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. (laughs) 
We don't have to provide the entire reason for the universe. The, the whole burden of meaning is not on our shoulders. We're sharing the universe with other life. If they do find life in another uh, galaxy, then we'll have to be galaxy, become galaxy-identified. We'll become Milky Wayans. And in the intergalactic sporting events, we'll be the ones chanting, hey, 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 Milky Way, hey, hey, hey. (laughs) Whether you know it or not, you're still using the energy of the Big Bang. All, every every move you make, every step you take, uh, that is the energy generated by that primal explosion. Right now, inside your skull, millions of synapses are firing. We hope. (laughs) That's the energy of the Big Bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. Again, pieces of the universe wondering about itself. What a fascinating situation we find ourselves in. The idea of other universes uh, has been held in Asian wisdom traditions for many, many centuries. The Dalai Lama was asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, "Mm, oh, yes, bang, yes, but bang, 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 many bangs, many universes. (laughs) The Hindus say their their creator deity, Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a universe is destroyed. And every time he opens his eyes again, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself. It actually works. This universe that we're in is a real trickster. Looks like there's a lot of stuff here, a lot of a lot of reality here. All this wood and all these people and cars and trees and rocks and but there's really hardly any stuff here at all because everything we perceive is made of atoms, we've discovered. And atoms are mostly empty space. You take the nucleus of an atom and uh, blow it up millions of times until it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand, and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So why don't we just fall right through the floor, right through the earth? It's a magic act. This is a magic act. You know, your body's made of atoms. Atoms are mostly empty space. What is holding your clothes on? (laughs) Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. (laughs) We're like optical illusions to each other. As it says in the Heart Sutra, Miss Trudy, Heart Sutra, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Thank you. That which is form is emptiness. Is that how 
praised? The same is true of feelings, perceptions, and pulses, consciousness. It goes through the skandhas, the Four Noble Truths. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, emptiness, emptiness is here. <laughs> emptiness rules the day. Physicists uh, say now that consciousness has a plays a major role in the creation of our reality. The, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. That's an interesting one, huh? In, in the subatomic world, it, when we're looking, there are particles. When we're not looking... There are just waves, probability waves. Like everybody's looking this way. You know, if we looked that way too, that the that part of the room would disappear because nobody would be looking at it. Maybe. There, there is a, a story that apocryphal, perhaps, that there is a group of lamas in the Himalayas holding the world together by paying attention. They know that we all have to live through the karma of this life on earth. Sokni Rinpoche, one of my teachers, said, you Westerners, you have a real problem. You think everything is so real. One of the great insights of the Asian wisdom traditions is to see through solidity, to see the effervescence of everything. Boy, if there's ever, if we ever needed proof of a Nietzsche, of impermanence, all we had to do was look into the subatomic world where things, scientists are measuring things that change in a millionth of a trillionth of a second. Now that's so off the scale of of our normal sense of timing, they've given it a new name. They call it an attosecond. (coughs) And then they started measuring things that change every billionth of a trillionth of a second. They call that a yoctosecond. And then they started measuring things that change, change a trillionth, every trillionth of a trillionth of a second. They began calling that a zeptosecond. Atto, yocto, and zepto. Now, doesn't that sound like the Marx Brothers? <laughs> with things, with the jokes just f- coming so fast, you know? It's extremely improbable for us to be here in this form, in this body, with this body nervous system trying to understand ourselves. Everything from the moment of the Big Bang, at least, and before, who knows, had to be just as it was, with all of the elements, with all of the forces exactly as they were, if the electromagnetic force uh, 
trying to pull the atoms apart had been a little bit bigger, uh, stronger or weaker, or the nuclear force holding them together a little stronger or weaker, or the neutron a little bigger, or everything had to be just as it was for things to continue to evolve as they did. Trillions of circumstances, causes and conditions leading to you in this moment. I mean, cosmologically and biologically, and it's so improbable. I think that we should... I've been working on starting a new religion based on science so that we can somehow worship the elements of the story. And the elements are certainly worthy of worship. And I think that we should begin chanting them at night. Along with Loka, we could chant uh, the table of basic elements. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon... They they have like a mantra like quality to them. Um, and on and um, and. Yeah. We had to be exactly in the right place on this planet in term in relation to our sun. Think about the the change of temperature and weather, you know, if you travel a thousand miles south or north, and then you realize how if our planet had been in orbit a little bit closer to the sun, we'd all be, you know, on the poles and, you know, trying desperately to survive the heat, or if we had been a little further away from the sun, we'd all be huddled around the equator, maybe we'd be woolly mammoths or something that we'd have big coats of fur. All of this happened due to... uh, We came out like this due to so many causes and conditions. And we're shaped, of course, by nature. Evolution happens by changing forces of nature, continents crashing into each other, ice ages coming and going, and life keeps adjusting and has to grow new appendages and new ways of mobility. And that's what brought us to be like this. Uh, There were no legs or feet for the first two, two and a half, three billion years of life on this planet because there was no land. There was no need for feet or legs. The story of evolution, our collective autobiography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the human egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body. The embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, and webbed fingers and toes, features of reptiles and amphibians as we cycle through the DNA of our ancestors. 
Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens all in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. The Buddha said, This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. It's like the Buddha was... He and Darwin would have gotten along well. Body is not mine. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. When we reflect on all these causes and conditions that lead us to this moment of experience, it's really a message of anatta. That we did not create the self. This not this self wasn't sort of suddenly created and it's part of a river, it's part of a flow of life. What an amazing being we are. I talked a little bit about the sense of hearing this morning or yesterday. What a miraculous process it is. Inside your stomach right now, digestion's going on. There are also many, many billions of beings living there. More beings alive in your stomach right now than all the beings that have ever lived on, all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses and roads, little churches in there, whole civilizations inside of you. They live on you, and you live at their mercy as well. You need them. There's some speculation that the bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood, you know? It's a pretty good deal. But uh, the great uh, molecular biologist Lynn Margulis says, inciting, you know, statistics like that, says, our idea of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking community. Each of us is a living ecosystem. We could talk about the hand. What an amazing instrument the fact that you can move your arm 360 degrees and your wrist almost 360 degrees thanks to millions of years of our relatives braciating swinging through the trees other mammals can't do that except only the primates you know they all you, they can't move their arms their paws like that and not so long ago, these hands, you know, could barely work with spears and make crude stone tools and chopsticks. And, and then, But now, I mean, build rockets and 
play the piano and Right now, your brain is processing an estimated 11 million bits of information a second, sifting through all of it, editing it, deciding what you need to see at this moment, and then offering you a moment-by-moment picture of it. You hardly have to lift a finger. Phenomenal. And this power of speech and that being able to communicate with such sophistication. You know, most a huge proportion of your brain is devoted to the movement of the tongue and the lips and the creation of speech. Uh, it's so important to our survival and our evolution. In the beginning, you know, it was very simple, I think. The, our speech was basically yum and yuck and... Uh, your place or mine. I don't know. Something like that. And then it got more sophisticated. But now it's just, I mean, you can say, for instance, say what you had for bre- for supper tonight. Uh, just speak it. You can speak it like that in, immediately without thinking about where to place your tongue and lips and make these particular sounds. Go ahead, say it. What you have for dinner. I know what you had. But go ahead, say it. <laughs> That didn't require a lot of brain power, did it? (laughs) (laughs) Tofu. My brain was on Penelope Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) What is uh, becoming increasingly astonishing to scientists is this little brain, this three-pound universe. Um, After studying it for a while, they have concluded that nobody's home. I mean, as meditators, you probably are somewhat aware of that. Uh, Time Magazine ran a cover story about 10 years ago now. Uh, cover story was entitled In Search of the Mind. And a lot of people probably saw that and maybe weren't aware that the mind was lost. And then would have been even more shocked if they read the article and found out that the scientists couldn't really find it. Uh, I wrote down the, the last paragraph of this story. I found it pretty astonishing. The Time article concludes, quote, despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness does not seem to be some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. End quote. This was in Time magazine. Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? The self does not exist. It turns out the brain is a this incredible self-organizing system that 
does pretty much most of the work for us. And consciousness sort of comes in, as Grove was pointing out the other day, consciousness comes in later to weave whatever happens, what we see, what we do, into our story. So we have some semblance of coherence to this life. But most, almost, uh, most uh, not, oh, well over 90% of the processing of the information that comes to us is done on what Daniel Dennett, a famous neuroscientist, calls the non-personal level. There are little groups of cells that handle all the different functions, lots of different groups of cells. If you see a face, one little group of cells is activated. If you see a face looking at you, Another group of cells is activated. Uh, nouns and verbs get processed in different areas of the brain. It, it's it's quite phenomenal. And what what some of the scientists are love to point out is that they just receive signals, and according to the strength of the signal they receive, they pass it on uh, with you know their particular twist their particular uh, force in it as well. And they don't know who they're working for. They There's no self or soul in these little groups of cells. It's, a, it's, a, it's just, there's a revolution going on right now in this field. And uh, it's really profoundly, I should think, going to alter our sense of who we are. I mean, if the knowledge gets turned into a kind of embodied wisdom, it will be a revolution. And then, of course, there's consciousness and nobody has a clue where it is, what it is, you know, Certainly not in science. You saw you saw it this morning, didn't you? At the in the big sky meditation, there, oh, there it was. We should we should write to them and say we found it. <laughs> and then there's DNA. Oh, what a world! DNA seems to be this miraculous thing, molecule that separates life from non-life. It's composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of information, coded information, the DNA molecule will contribute to the growth of a human or a rose or an ant or a giant ponderosa pine. It's what separates life. All, all is based on DNA. DNA tells it how to grow. The, the codes of, in the DNA. You may know we share nearly 98% of our DNA with uh, other primates and almost 100, uh, 100%, 99.9999% of our DNA is exactly the same as the DNA of the person sitting next to you. Uh, the instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining 
the Dalai Lama, uh, Oprah, or, you know, Mother Teresa. Or, they're, they're both, yeah, no. You know what I'm saying. Everybody is built out of basically the same directions. It takes so much information to build a basic mammal and then a human mammal. All the nervous system, the digestive system, the circulatory system, the uh, the structure of the bones, and the and then that amazing brain. Almost all of our DNA goes into that. The personality, the little differences, just a basic coat of paint over the the human design that we all share. We we share nearly ninety percent of our DNA with mice. It takes a lot of information to build a basic mammal. We share nearly fifty percent of our DNA with yeast. Are you ready for that? <laughs> So if you declare yourself divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who gets a soul? Do mushrooms get a soul? Snails? See, the the story of evolution does not deny our divinity. But it may deny our exclusive divinity. As it shows us how related we are to everything that lives. Okay, I'm almost done here. I just there's one thing that really blows my mind and and it is the fact that we have a 100 trillion cells or so in our body. Inside each of our cells, 100 trillion cells is a and and each of them is a millionth of a millionth of a pinhead large. Inside each of our cells is a drop of seawater virtually. And inside that drop of seawater is a two-yard strand of DNA. It's about the thinnest molecule known. It's just a couple of atoms wide. And it's wrapped millions of times around itself. So you get two yards of DNA in each of your hundred trillion cells. So if your DNA was stretched out end to end, 126 billion miles of DNA. We go around the planet millions of times. The instructions that you carry inside yourself for building and maintaining your being. The whole history of life is inside of you. Everything life has ever learned. Something strange and wondrous going on here. Oh, by the way, Lily Tomlin once said, uh, they have DNA on other planets. They just spell it differently. (laughs) I've been trying to uh, create a new acronym for DNA, which stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. I think it's much too cold and clinical for this magical substance. So... I advise you and I invite you to, every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Mm -hmm. So something strange and wondrous going on here. E.O. Wilson, great 
biologist uh, Grove has been citing him for the whole time we've been up here. He's been reading his latest book, which is pretty revolutionary. He said, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe would be like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and producing a 747. (laughs) Something's going on and you don't know what it is, do you? Anyway, I think that the Dharma has been instrumental in my life for bringing me a kind of curiosity and a kind of innocence in and and brought me to the world of science, which I never used to have much interest in. And maybe I've become interested in it because I realized that it's all about me. Uh, but uh, I think Dharma and, and science go together just so beautifully because we really reveal ourselves to ourselves in the practice of meditation in a way that, you know, in a way that facts uh, somebody looking at my mind, uh, a different person looking at my mind, wouldn't wouldn't be able to in, to inculcate in, in the same way. So anyway, let me close with this. Let me close with two things. Let me close with the last paragraph of the origin of species. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms. And while this, our planet has gone circling on according to fixed laws and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other so that from so simple an origin, through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms most beautiful and wonderful have been evolved. Endless forms most beautiful and wonderful have been evolved. And D.H. Lawrence Our task in the coming era is to relocate ourselves in the cosmos and renew our kinship with all of earth life. It is time to join again in the dance drama of biological and cosmic evolution. In short, to regain some humility and find our life's meaning, not in individual satisfactions and accomplishments, but in our shared existence. So that's all I have to say. Uh, we did start a little late. Maybe we, you know, anybody has some additions or corrections. I do take corrections because, you know, I'm I'm kind of a lay. I, I I'm not a scientist, and I I read in it a lot. But I I've made been known to make some mistakes. Maybe there. Are, 
are more than 200 billion galaxies. I don't know. Maybe you have a different source. Or just, you know, anybody want to say anything. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't bring it. I can't take responsibility for anything anymore. You know, it's sort of, if, if you believe it's not your fault, then it's hard to take, you know, claim it was your, your doing. I've heard about it. Yes. Um, it has some molecule in it that they call DM, I don't know what it's called, DMT or something. They call it the spirit molecule. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've heard this discussion. But they say it's a molecule that's found in every living thing. Um, and there's a sense, I don't know much about it, but people who have gone on this experience or trip or whatever you want to call it, had an experience of everything being alive mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the interconnection and the inner being. Like, I think it's a psychedelic, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So is, how, do you know about that and how it might be related to DNA? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about its its relationship. But I, I, I know that, uh, you know, in, in meditation you can get in places where you see everything alive, too. I mean, it's... Yeah, I, I, I people, some people really love to take that drug and it really gives them visions of a different kind of reality or the reality inside of the reality we ordinarily see and get in touch with, you know, spirit beings. and Who knows what's out there? It's interesting that you talked about the Dalai Lama saying many bangs because that's now what they're coming up with when they do. Yeah. Multiverses, big... Maybe it'll. Yeah. Well, he's very interested in science. Maybe it'll turn out that our Big Bang is actually was actually a little bang. You know, wasn't much of a bang. Wouldn't that blow everybody's mind? You know. You guys just had a little bang. Wasn't that big? Yes. Uh, I was reading a cosmologist, I can't remember his name, but uh, this book came out a couple couple months ago, and he was saying that inevitably something must come from nothing, but statistically, and, and not even in, not only, you know, it wouldn't take a very long time, but if you had a true vacuum, things would start to pop into that vacuum fairly quickly, and that it's inevitable. What, what kind of things? What do you say? You didn't actually say that. 
mostly saying very basic <laughs> components of, of atoms. Mm -hmm. But as those come in, they start to start uh, inevitably to build more complex structures mm -hmm. and more complex structures. Mm -hmm. uh, and that all of that would, would uh, be inevitable. The question, you know, that still, of course, remains is not only, not how the universe happens, or, but why? Why is there something rather than nothing? Nobody knows. That's, yeah, that's, you, you, so that we can love each other. And then, you know, it's like that Mary Oliver question, you know, why is the world beautiful? What does it mean that the world is beautiful? Well, let's uh, have a little walking period. Remember, we're back in silence. We'll have a little walking period and come back here at 8.30. How much time do we have to walk? Uh, 25, 24 minutes. Is that, is that enough? Is that too much? No, no, no. No, just because I'm meeting with some people. Oh, okay. Okay, what time do you want to go? 8.20. 8.20. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.